Welcome to the Gospel in Lagos, the sermon podcast of City Church. City Church is a community of worshippers and mission. We exist to catalyze a gospel-centered movement that renews Lagos spiritually, socially, and culturally. You can find out more about us at www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos. First Corinthians 1 Corinthians 1.26-2, 1-5 to Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of the world and the despised things and the things that were not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ, who has has become for us wisdom from God that is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, as, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And so it was to me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstra- demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we do not want our faith to rest, Lord, on man's wisdom this morning. We want it, Lord, to rest on God's power. And so, Lord, we're asking that you do that for us this morning. Lord, we're asking, oh God, that um, the prayer of Jeremiah in Jeremiah 15, where he says that your words were found and I ate them, and they became to me a joy and delight of my heart. Lord, we're asking that that is what you do for us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Good morning, everyone. Um, Big welcome to those of us who are joining us for the first time, or you've been away and you're coming back after a long while. And it's good to see you all this morning. So we've been doing a series called Charismata, the gifts of the Spirit, and we've been looking really at some gifts of the Spirit, and we established last week that all the gifts of the Spirit are supernatural, even though some are extraordinary and some aren't. And so you find these gifts listed out in three passages in the Bible. In Romans 12, um, 3 to 8, in 1 Corinthians 12, the more popular of the three, and in 1 Peter 4, verse 11. And so what we've said is that um, all these gifts are spiritual, all these gifts are supernatural rather because they're enablements by the Holy Spirit and they're gifts of grace given to us not because we merit them or deserve them, but because God in his mercy and his grace gives them to us generously to serve each other for the common good. And so this morning, um, we'll be looking at the third one, preaching and teaching. We started two weeks ago with healing and miracles and then moved to a not so controversial one, um, encouragement and mercy, and we'll be looking at preaching and teaching this morning. And I've called the sermon, preaching, and teaching. 
Now we find these gifts listed out in Romans chapter 12. Uh, let me just read verse 6 to 8 for us. It says, Paul says, We have different gifts according to the grace given to each of us. If your gift is prophesying, then prophesy in accordance with your faith. If it is serving, then serve. If it is teaching, then teach. So here Paul refers to the gift of teaching. But in 1 Peter 4, 11, um, Peter talks about the gift of speaking. And so which is it? Is it speaking or is it teaching? Um, so let me just quickly establish that these passages, the gifts listed out in these passages are not an exhaustive list, right? But rather, they are, some of them are categories, some of them are indications of how, how the Spirit actually works. So for instance, um, we find in the Bible like deliverance happening in Acts chapter 16 where Paul actually exercises a demonic spirit from, uh, from a lady. But if you look through all the, all the passages, you don't find a gift of deliverance. And so the point is that sometimes you might find gifts in operation that aren't actually listed out in passages of the Bible. And so that's what we have with preaching, for instance. Um, so in, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul is able to talk to the Ephesians about the grace given to me to preach. Um, in 1 Timothy 4.13, Paul says to Timothy, devote yourself to the public reading of scripture and to preaching and teaching. And same thing in 1 Timothy 5, um, verse 17 as well, where he says, elders are worthy of double honor, especially those whose job is preaching and teaching. So you might not find the gift of preaching listed out in a passage, but it is there actually in the Bible. And so as we go on, I'll establish further what these gifts are and how they are different. But permit me to say that oftentimes in the Bible, you find that preaching and teaching are like Siamese twins, right? You find them usually going hand in hand in different passages. And as I was thinking about this topic, it, it struck me really, um, it struck me again afresh that part of the reasons why our churches are this way is that the way they are today is that you find a lot of talking and sharing. People are sharing, people are talking, people are giving advice, sometimes from the pulpit, sometimes um, from the pew. But what you don't find enough of, as the Bible defines it, is preaching and teaching. Because preaching and teaching communicates that there's a message that comes from outside of me, or that comes from above me. So just take, for instance, the classroom. The fact that a teacher is able to teach something is because there is a curriculum that has been preset that he's meant to pass and communicate to the, to the students. And it's the same thing with preaching and teaching in the Bible. We find that preaching and teaching is the passing on of a message. And so we see four things in this passage that we considered this morning. We see how that there is a context, there's a content rather of the message, there's a context of the message, there's a creature that the message is creating, and there's a power that drives the message, the content, the context, the creature, and the power of the message. Let's look at the first one, the content of the message. And so Paul begins in verses 1 and 2 of um, chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians saying, I proclaim to you the testimony about God, for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so he tells the Corinthians that he was simply announcing to them the testimony of God, or what you call God's witness, or the witness about God, the things God had done. And now to truly understand the backdrop to, to what he's writing in 1 Corinthians, we see the story of Paul's voyage, or how Paul enters um, Corinth in Acts chapter 18, verse 1 to 17. 
And so the, 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 brief, the brief background is that Paul has just left the city of Athens where he's preached in the city hall, or more appropriately, the city hill, because the city hall is on a hill. And it was a pretty decent um, performance. And so he left Athens, and now he's in Corinth. He was waiting for his colleagues there. But then he finds a Jewish couple, Aquila and Priscilla, and he joins himself to them, and he begins to preach in the synagogue. And then after preaching in the synagogue, things don't go really well there. And so he moves on to the Gentiles. And that's not going really well also. And in fact, we know it's not going really well because we are told in verses 9 to 10 that God actually has to speak to him in a vision. And so the Lord says to him in a vision, do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have my people in this city. And so how does he respond? In verse 11, we are told he goes into, um, he spends 18 months there and he devotes himself to teaching them. But then in verse 5 also of um, Acts chapter 18, we are told that he had devoted himself exclusively to preaching to the Jews. And so the question is, which is it? Was he preaching or was he teaching? Well, it was both. I like this definition of preaching and teaching from an older pastor. He says, preaching is like when Someone, some of you may remember um, Tales by Moonlight and where you have a king who sends the town crier into the, into the town or into the village. And so preaching is like the town crier going to the village and announcing to people that you have been forgiven. Um, and amnesia has been declared by the king, freeing all the slaves. Teaching is when people ask the question, what does this mean? What does this mean for me? When do I get free? What does this mean for my family? What does this mean for, my, for the things I have? Preaching is when you now begin to unpack the implications of that message. And so preaching is announcing or communicating the message. Teaching is unpacking the implication of the message. And so Paul dedicates himself to doing these two things in Corinth. But Paul intends to shock us and to shock his listeners in Corinth by his announcement in verse 2. Because you'll have thought that Paul could have, of all the things Paul could have said to the Corinthians, he could have gone there and talked about how great God is. He could have gone there and talked about how special the Corinthians were for having him in their midst. After all, he was the Apostle Paul. He could have gone there and said many different things to them, or even told them how they could sow $100 to get $10,000. All of those things will have been fine, except the last one. All of those things will have been fine, but he didn't do any of those. Rather, he says, I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so Paul is at pains to show us very quickly that the testimony about God he talks about in verse 1 is not in a vacuum. Rather, this testimony about God is in the context of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And friends, this is important not just in Corinth. It wasn't just important for Corinth, but it's important for us here in Lagos. In a nation where, and city where we have many churches talking about the testimony of God, saying many things about God and what God is able to do, but spending little or no time on Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul is not just including, you know, he's not just adding on to the message like, oh, you guys, I really want you to excel at your career. I want you guys to be great. But then there's this other thing too, so you can just include it. He's not including Jesus Christ and him crucified. He says rather, notice the words. He says, I resolved to know nothing. He made up his mind. He was determined. Everything else was serving that end. 
Jesus Christ and him crucified. And now in a city like Lagos where both Christians and non-Christians are familiar with the concept of the cross, it doesn't, it doesn't trigger the, the memory or, or, the, or the affinity that is meant to trigger in our minds. But when Paul says, I resolve to know nothing except Jesus Christ, which means Savior, Christ means Savior or Deliverer, and him crucified, it's like talking about Usain Bolt in the, in the Rio Olympics in 2016 and saying that, oh, Usain Bolt won the 200 meter race, but he didn't get the gold. They're like, how is that even possible? How does someone win a race and not get the gold? But Paul is not even just talking about the fact that Jesus Christ died. He says Jesus Christ was crucified. We don't get the picture of the cross like we are meant to because it's not a fashionable item. It doesn't carry the weight it used to. But there's, there's a close analogy um, that we have in Nigeria. So several years ago, um, in the 70s and the 80s, there used to be something called the Barbie Show. And the Barbie Show, unlike the Barbie Show that exists now, the Barbie Show wasn't a music festival. It wasn't an end of the year celebration. The Barbie Show was a nice way of talking about a public execution. And so the public execution was the, the, the government at the time, the military government would usually round off at the end of the Civil War to make a spectacle of armed robbers and people who were dealing um, in ammunition, in, in, in robbery, they would gather them after they had been sentenced and convicted by the courts and take them to the barbage. And on the barbage, they would tie them to drums, have a public spectacle where thousands of people would gather and then they would shoot them. And when Paul says, I resolved to know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified, it's like saying Jesus Christ was shot on the barbage. That's the way Paul intends for us to feel the shock when we read that passage. And yet Paul says that this isn't just an add-on to my ministry. This is the crux of my ministry. And why does Paul do this? Why does Paul take such a bad act, a, a deadly act, and associate himself to it? It is because he realizes that there is no proclaiming the testimony about God without proclaiming Christ and his cross. There's no proclaiming the testimony about God if the death and the resurrection and the work of Christ on the cross is not central to his proclamation. And this is really important for us because we live in a city where there are different types of gospels, different types of gospels being portrayed and being given to us from the pulpits and from different churches. And, and really there are, there, there are lots of them, but they really come down to two. And so the first one is the one we all know that a lot of people, by God's grace, these days have been railing against and speaking out against as the prosperity gospel. And by God's grace, it will die. We have been praying for it here to die, and it will die. But it's still prevalent. And the prosperity gospel really aims to tell a testimony about God and even talks about Jesus Christ and his work on the cross, but really as a means to us getting wealthy and healthy and prosperous. You see, the problem with the prosperity gospel is that it takes away from Jesus' work by saying that Jesus Christ came to deliver us from the sin of poverty, from the sin of sickness, and the sin of a bad life. So that's the prosperity gospel. But then there's another gospel that is not so prominent and not so popular, but is equally as dangerous. 
for want of a better word, I'll call it the holiness gospel, even though biblical holiness is not like this. But let's just call it the holiness gospel. And so the holiness gospel talks about the testimony of God, even does better in extolling the person of Christ and his work on the cross. But it reduces Christianity to a series of do's and don'ts. And so Jesus Christ died so that he can stop wearing trousers and stop smoking. I remember being in a prayer meeting a few um, when I was on campus, and this person um, gave a prophecy that he had seen something, seen a vision of the end times, and people were going to hell because they were wearing trousers and because they were um, wearing attachments and different things. It caused such a huge commotion because people were like, I don't want to go to hell. And so what do you do not to go to hell? You have to stop wearing trousers and you have to stop wearing attachments. But the problem with this gospel is that it adds to the work of Jesus Christ. It is not enough that Jesus Christ has died for you. You have to start doing things to make sure that God loves you more. God, God keeps you. You make heaven. And the problem with both of them is that they are knowing other things except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You see, with the prosperity gospel, Jesus is the, the genie in the lamp, Aladdin's genie in the lamp, who, who exists to do your every bidding, who is a magician, really, that does all the things you want. The problem with the holiness gospel is that Jesus is the Grinch who stole Christmas, who is only happy when you are miserable. Both of them take away from the cross of Christ. Both of them take away from Jesus Christ and him crucified. And Paul says here that true Christian preaching is one that exalts this glorious Christ, is one that is centered on his work for us on the cross, not merely as an example for us, not merely as one who makes a way for us onto other things, but as the one who actually secures a place for us with the Father, who calls us to himself. And so this is what God does with the gift of preaching and teaching. What he did in Corinth is that God always confronts our tendencies to either add to the work of Christ, or to take away from the work of Christ. And there are many of us here, depending on our backgrounds, our tendencies could either be to add to the work of Christ. Your skirt should be this certain length. You should wear this certain type of dresses. You should wear this certain type of clothes. And what God does when his word comes forth to us like this, gathered together, or through our GCs, or through some other means in which we gather, God is always confronting our tendencies to either make more or less of the cross of Christ that we find in these two Gospels because he wants us to be conformed to his image. And so Paul says very quickly that the content of the message that, that is being passed across is a message about Jesus Christ and him crucified. Jesus Christ and him crucified not merely as an example for us, but him as the redeemer and the one who purchases us. But then he goes on to show in a second point that there is also a context to this message. There is a context to this message. And if you were God and you had the opportunity to present a revelation about yourself to the world, I'm sure that you would stop at nothing to make sure that that message comes out through the best means. You hire the best PR personnel. You'd erect massive billboards on the Atlantic Ocean and make sure that everybody sees that this is me. But thank God we're not God. Because Paul has actually even established in verses 18 to 25 that God does not think in the same way we think. And so Paul says in verses 1 to 3, And so it was with me, brothers and sisters, when I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. 
I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. And so against all natural thinking, against all tendencies, God does not give this message to angels. God does not give this message about the gospel, about the person of Christ, to eloquent speakers. In fact, in Acts chapter 10, we are told the story of Cornelius who is praying. And God sends an angel to him. And the angel doesn't say, Cornelius, this is the gospel of Christ, even though he could have done that. The angel says, send for Peter who will tell you about the gospel of Christ. And that is how God works. He works through people passing on his message. And it is that same thing we find with Paul here in, in, in Corinth, when he, when he went to Corinth in um, Acts 18, 9 to 10. When Paul says he was there in weakness, in great fear and trembling, this is not Paul trying to be humble, to form Christian humility, like, I'm really good, but so that you guys won't think I'm proud, I would say, like, I'm not really good. In fact, we know Paul was a very good speaker because in Acts chapter 14, he and Barnabas went to um, a town called Lystra, and because of what he said, the people there were like, this guy is such a good speaker, and they named him after one of their gods, and they were about to worship him. So Paul wasn't talking about the fact that he was a bad speaker, but he was saying very simply that the message of Christ does not advance by human eloquence or by human wisdom. This doesn't mean that we don't take great care to ensure that the words we speak are well-researched or that we get our pronunciations right or that we pass across in a very effective way our message. But it means that the gospel of Christ does not advance by human eloquence or by wisdom. When Paul talks about eloquence here in, in verse 1, when he says, I did not come to you with eloquence or human wisdom, he's talking about a certain kind of worldview that originates from human beings, that comes out from our thinking, our philosophy, the way we're able to construct things in a good way. And the reason why Paul says the gospel does not advance by either our eloquence or by wisdom is because you cannot show yourself to be a great speaker and an effective speaker and, and somebody who is fantastic, and at the same time show Christ to be great. You cannot display yourself as the one who is fantastic, and everybody has the privilege of meeting you, and at the same time show Christ to be great. In fact, in John chapter 3, verse 30, John the Baptist says to his disciples that he must increase, and I must decrease. And Paul very quickly shows that, that the context of the message of the gospel, the context of the message of preaching and teaching, is not a context in which we are wowed by the eloquence of this great speaker. It is a context where we are drawn, rather, to the weakness, to the great fear, to the trembling of this speaker, and to the excellency and the greatness of Christ. It's a context where we don't refer to ourselves as Christian preachers and teachers. The context where, rather, the focus the aim, the glory is to show the awesomeness of Christ. But this is not just for those of us who are gifted with this gift. This is also for those of us who, by God's grace, are beneficiaries of this gift. Those of us who get to listen week in, week out to our GC leaders, teaching us in our small groups, to the people on the preaching team, passing across the word of God to us. There's a tendency for us as well to begin to think of our, the people who have these gifts. We want them to look a certain way. We want them to seem a certain way. We want them to appear confident. We want them to appear fly so that you can point and say, that's my pastor. 
But Paul says very quickly that, that the gospel does not advance by human eloquence or by wisdom. I remember a few years ago, at the time when I was becoming increasingly convinced that God was gifting me and leading me um, to ministry to serve, a family member came to visit us, um, visit my parents. And this person, godly person I respect, the person said to me, asked me, um, Emmanuel, what do you want to be? And at that time, I, I, like, I had gone through all the phases. I wanted to be a military, I wanted to be in the military, I wanted to be the head of state, I wanted to stage a coup, I wanted to be a pilot. I had done different things. And so at this particular time, I had become convinced that God was leading me on this path. And so I told the person, um, with the little understanding that I had then, that I want to be a seminary prof and a pastor. And the person was like, ah, how will you feed your family? And I'm not going to assume the person's motive, but that kind of thinking comes when we as a people often think that our pastors and our teachers and the people who are gifted with this gift should look a certain way. We want them to be a certain way so they've, they've gone through the corporate ladder, they've climbed, they've accumulated all this stuff so that when he comes, I can say, I am the Reverend Dr. Emmanuel Osset. And I've studied at Princeton and Harvard and Yale and you guys are just really great to have me in front of you. Of course, we won't say it like that, but there's, there's this expectation we have that we want our people to look a certain way. And this is sometimes part of the reasons why pastors pretend, and people who have been gifted with this gift pretend because they don't want people to know how broken and how weak they are. We don't want our pastors to be sick. We don't want our pastors to be ill so that we can say that God is with us in this church. God is really on our side. Like, we are the fly church. We are the ones who are really great. But Paul says the context of the message is God advancing his kingdom through weak, broken, and trembling people. And this means that as a community, sometimes God is going to gift us with people that, like, they don't really look it. They don't look the way the world wants them to look. They don't look the way we'd expect them to look. They don't look like the powerful orators that they are meant to be. But because we know that the gospel does not advance, God does not use necessarily the wisest people, the most eloquent people. God is going to call us as a community to affirm the gifts in them, regardless of the fact that they don't look a certain way that I want them to look. And just touching again on how the gospel advances by weakness, by brokenness. If you read through the scripture, the Bible doesn't give us a portrait of people who have their acts all got together. In fact, I personally like the fact that sometimes the Bible talks about some of the people we hold in the highest regard. We see Paul losing his temper, getting into an argument with Barnabas in Acts chapter, chapter 15. And because of that, they're no longer able to work together. And yet God is able to take that broken person that person with the trembling, that person with the great fear that he has, and he's able to use both Paul and Barnabas to accomplish the mission of God. We see God recording for us in Scripture how that Paul is wrestling in, First Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 with an illness, and God does not heal him. Ponder this for a minute. This same Apostle Paul, the guy who 
has had experiences in the third heavens that he cannot tell us. The guy who has had Christ appear to him on the road to Damascus, and yet this guy is wrestling with God, praying, God, touch me, heal me, take this thing away. And God doesn't take it away. Why? Because God is always pleased to use people who are broken, people who, are, who don't have their acts all got together, and he uses them for the sake of his kingdom. Or you find in 1 Timothy, where Paul is advising Timothy on meds to use for his illness. He says, take a little wine for your stomach. Paul, couldn't you have just prayed for this guy? And yet, it is this same Timothy that God uses to serve as an elder, to institute churches, to raise up leaders in his place. And friends, God is calling, and Paul says really that the gospel, the context of the message that we deliver is not people who have their acts all got together, people who, who are come from the greatest of educational backgrounds. It is people who are weak and trembling and broken. And the reason this is possible is because the message does not rely on them. The message comes from God. And maybe there are some of us here, particularly teenagers or, or pre-teenagers, or people, even just young adults, wrestling through issues of life. This delivers us from the, from the need and the tendency we have to be cool. Because cool is overrated. Cool is overrated. God is always pleased to take broken people, people who have issues, people who have weaknesses, and he's pleased to use them. But then we find also that this message is working to create something. And Paul shows us another one, we see in our third point, that there's a creature of the message. In chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, it says, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. And he goes on, how not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were noble. But God chose the weak things. And he chose the weak things to nullify the things that are strong. And he says, because of that, we are in Christ who has become our wisdom, our righteousness, our holiness, and our redemption. I like this passage because it's one of my favorite passages in the Bible. And what Paul is doing here really is that he is at once both destroying our pride and building our confidence at the same time. He basically looks at the Corinthians and says, you guys are not impressive. You guys are not an impressive bunch. Because by human standards, you aren't influential, you aren't wise, you aren't strong. But yet he notes in verse 29 and 31 that this is precisely what makes the grace of God amazing. It is because they were not an impressive bunch that they are actually an impressive bunch. And permit me today that the Holy Spirit is saying to us, to our city church, that you guys are not an impressive bunch. Some of you can just think about your own history and your own family, your own family background, your lineage, and you think, like, I shouldn't even be here. I shouldn't even be a Christian. The things I have done, the things that have been done to me, I shouldn't even be here. And Paul says, yes, precisely because you are not impressive. That is why you are impressive. In verse 26, it says, God called. In verse 27, it says, God chose. In verse 28, it says, God chose. And so we find that our greatest claim to fame as Christians is that we have been called, chosen, loved, adopted, purchased by God, by his son's blood for himself. 
But God doesn't just walk through a vacuum. In verse 23, he says very simply that we preach Christ and we find that it is the preaching of Christ that actually God uses to create a people for himself. And some of us can bear testimony to this, that it was as God's word was coming forth at different stages of your life, that is when you became a Christian. I know a friend in this church who said, who said that it was through a message her sister sent to her, that was when she actually woke up and realized, look, I'm not a Christian. And she was able to commit herself to Christ. And some of us here, we have similar testimonies about how we're doing different things and going our own path. And how because of a word from God that was communicated, either through your small group, either through a sermon on Sunday morning, God called you to himself and purchased you. Others of us, it was as we gathered with friends, as we spoke, as we talked, that God was convicting us of certain sin patterns in our lives and calling us to himself and showing us idols in our hearts. Some of us have testimonies here where we're gathered in Jesus, and it was that first time that you realized, I have a tendency towards legalism. Paul says that that is God at work, calling himself, calling you to himself, rebuking you, admonishing you, shaping you, and making you into the image of Christ. And that is what the word of God creates when it goes forth through the gifts of preaching and teaching. And we find here, this morning, if you're a non-Christian, God is at work again today, calling you to himself, asking you to commit your life to him, showing you how much he cares and loves you, simply through this gift of preaching and teaching. And how much more, if God has already done that for us in the past, how much more can God do again? In Titus chapter 2, verses 3 to 4, Paul talks about the teaching ministry of certain women or the women in the church who are able to unleash the word of God through their teaching so that other women are built up and the word of God is not slandered. In Colossians chapter 3, verse 16, Paul says, we are to allow the word of God to dwell richly in us. And part of the reasons why that must happen, that the word of God dwells richly in us, the gospel dwells richly in us, we are constantly feasting in the word of God in our daily devotions and all through these means that we have, is because we might be able, so that we might be able to teach and admonish one another. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, Paul says part of the role of parents, just as we heard in the recently concluded series, part of the role of parents is to train and instruct their children in the word of God. And so this gift goes just beyond those who are on the preaching team. This gift goes into every sector of our lives. In our GCs, part of the things we are meant to be doing is teaching and admonishing one another with the word of God. Not only when you have your three points got together and I've seen this thing, the ultimate power and the ultimate this and ultimate that, you snatched it from, from I almost called him Reverend Femi, Pastor Femi. And then you think that's the only time you can actually teach. No, the gift of teaching works through these other means as well. The gift of teaching works when we gather together as we will during, during this holiday season sometimes in our BRC, sometimes in other groups, avenues that we have, and we are saying the word of God to each other. We need the gift of teaching there as well. And Paul says that when this is happening, when we are communicating the word of God to each other as we are meant to be, God is at work creating a people for himself. Short that people can say there's really nothing special about these guys, and that's what makes them special. 
In fact, in the book of Acts, in chapter 4, Peter and John are before the Sanhedrin, the religious council, and they look at these guys and say, there is nothing special about these guys. These guys don't have any fantastic education. But then Luke records, but they took note that they had been with Christ. And that is what God aims to do through the gift of preaching and teaching, creating a people for himself, building a people for himself, raising a people for himself who are not impressive because of their backgrounds, who are not impressive because of anything in them, but who are impressive because they have been chosen and called by God and using this gift to build one another up. But lastly, we see Paul showing us that there is a power of this message. And so he says in verses 4 to 5, that my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. And so Paul does not only tell us what he doesn't have. He doesn't just tell us that I don't have wise or persuasive words, full stop, because that doesn't help anybody. There are many of us here who don't have wise or persuasive words. There are many of us who don't have that gift of the gab. But Paul tells us what he had. He says that he had the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And we might be quick to think, maybe this demonstration of the Spirit's power is when he just goes into Corinth and he's just walking, slow motion, walking, and people are just falling left, right, center. But Paul says, no, that's not the demonstration of the Spirit's power. The demonstration of the Spirit's power, rather, is what we see in verse 18 to 31, God working to create a people for himself through Paul's foolishness, through Paul's brokenness, through Paul's weakness. God is at work creating a people for himself. Not because of Paul, but because of the Spirit's power. And so Paul shows us here that what, what we should have is not just the content of the message, Christ. It's not just the context of the message, our brokenness and our trembling and our weakness, but we need the Spirit's power as well. And as we read through the book of Acts, we read the, the epistles as well. This Spirit's power sometimes at work in our lives is called being filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 4, Paul is, Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit and he stands before the council of elders in Jerusalem. I'm not done. He stands before the council of elders in Jerusalem. And we are told that he is full of the Holy Spirit and he begins to preach and speak the word of God to them. In verse 31, the believers gather together after being tried by, by, by the religious authorities. And they gather together and they are praying. And what did they pray? Father, stretch out your hand upon us. And, we record, and it records in verse 31 that they are full of the Holy Spirit and they go out speaking the words of God. We've heard about Stephen. And someone was so amazed about this last week. And a person came to meet me afterwards. How that Stephen was full of the Holy Spirit to be able to serve tables. But one of the things we also find about Stephen is that as he goes out, the, the reason why his speaking and preaching ministry is so effective is because he is filled with the Holy Spirit. In fact, in Acts chapter 8, he records that he's full of the Holy Spirit just before he dies and he speaks the word of God with boldness. And it is this same power of the Holy Spirit that is at work in Paul's ministry in Corinth as well. Paul goes there. Things are not going too well. 
and God appears to him, and he is able to spend 18 more months there working, advancing the cause of the gospel, preaching and teaching because there was a demonstration of the Spirit's power. And brothers and sisters, we need this gift. We need this power at work in our church. We need this power at work in our church as GC leaders. Some of us here are GC leaders. Part of the reasons why, permit me to say, maybe your GC facilitation doesn't go as well is because there's a lack of the Spirit's power. Some of us are city kids, um, teachers as well. And I tell you, if you don't know where you need the Spirit's power, you need the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to take huge concepts and pass it on to three to five-year-olds. You need the power of the Holy Spirit as you teach. Some of us are unit leaders, departmental leaders, and part of the things we must do is not just to send out what people are going to do on Sundays and during the week, it's also to teach with the power of the Holy Spirit. Those of us on the preaching team as well, we need a fresh outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for all God has been able to do previously, but we do need the Holy Spirit again and afresh to be able to teach and preach like we ought. Some of us are parents. When your child asks you that question, where did God come from? It's not just for you to know the right answer, but it's also for the Holy Spirit to be so much at work in your life so that you can interpret where that, not just the answer to that question, but where that question is coming from. Some of us, even as spouse to spouse, part of the things I found the hardest is to be able to take God's word and to be able to minister to your spouse as well. And you need the power of the Holy Spirit for that. Or you're in a counseling situation. Someone is facing you with this life or death issue and you don't know what to say. The Bible verses have all disappeared from your mind. You need the power of the Holy Spirit in that situation. And so the gift of preaching and teaching is not just for those of us who speak on Sundays from this platform, but it is for everyone in the life of the church. Because God calls us to teach and to admonish each other because the word of Christ dwells in us. And friends, we find that the reason why we are able to have this power of the Holy Spirit is because Christ has died and purchased the people for himself. This is the message of the cross Paul is unpacking to the Corinthians in chapter 1. He says that the foolishness of the cross was what saved them. Who would think that Jesus being crucified would save people? Who would think that a person being shot on the barbage would save anybody? And yet that is what God does precisely through the death of Christ. He calls the people for himself. He renews them. He changes them. And he gifts them with the Holy Spirit. He gives us with the Holy Spirit not just to live in us, but also to be able to serve one another, to be able to minister to one another. And friends, if you are here and you're a Christian, God has given you his Holy Spirit. And the command to us as Christians, we find in Ephesians chapter 4, is to be filled with the Spirit. Seeking more of the Holy Spirit. All through the book of Acts, we find that it wasn't just in Acts chapter 2, but it's peppered all through the book, praying and asking for more of the Holy Spirit. And we must seek for more of the Holy Spirit here this morning. But if you are here and not a Christian, can I tell you that this is the same goodness that God offers to you in Christ, inviting you to himself. Not through the eloquence of people, not through the eloquence of human words, but through 
the simple death of his son upon a cross. And if you'd like to speak to any of the leaders on how you can become a follower of Christ, you can speak with our pastor, with any of the leaders, or with myself afterwards. But friends, if I can just urge us this morning, the Holy Spirit is urging us, showing to us that we need this gift of the Holy Spirit at work in our life and in our church. And this gift will only serve its purpose when we realize that it has a context. It has a content. It is creating something, but it is empowered by the Holy Spirit. Let's bow down our heads as we pray. Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com. City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.